So we started off with a very basic definition of the church, that the church is a community of people who follow a man named Jesus who was sent by God to explain who God was and to make a way to God. And um, throughout his teachings, Jesus told us that it's really all about loving God and loving people. In fact, the way that we actually love God is we love other people, right? And so we've been talking about legacy, and, and over the past 2,000 years, um, the, tr- the legacy of the church um, isn't always what it should be, right? I mean, while the church should have a legacy of love, because that's exactly what we should be about, in many instances in our own lives and in, in our own experiences, we've seen how the church has fallen short. The great news, however, is that the legacy of the church is still being written, right? Do you guys realize we are the caretakers of the church in our generation? So, so and we've been exploring then how we can leave behind a legacy of love for the next generation. And we had to start by kind of explaining what went wrong in the first place so that we didn't make the same mistakes. And what we discovered is that aside from the really extreme examples of, of the, a group of people who call themselves a church but do nothing but spew a message of hate or when a prominent church leader gets ex, you know, publicly exposed for some scandal, the biggest problem with, uh, is, when, is when the church tries to add old things back in to the new. See, the old way of relating to God, can you bring up the next slide? The old way of relating to God was through the temple model. And in the temple model, you have sacred places. It could be a building, could even be a city, but you have these sacred places where the adherents of that religion believe their God lives or dwells, right? And in these sacred places, there's always sacred texts, And these sacred texts are so complicated that they need sacred men to explain to the sincere followers what the sacred texts mean. Okay? And we talked about all the problems with this model. Uh, The biggest problem being, of course, that the sacred men have so much power and authority that they can abuse to manipulate the sincere followers because they think they can please God by doing what these sacred men say to do, right? But when Jesus came along, he completely destroyed the temple model. He said, no more sacred places. Because because no longer is God going to be residing in one place. He's going to live in your heart. In the person of the Holy Spirit. One of those beautiful um, moments in all of scripture is when Jesus is on the cross. And he breathes his last. And the, the, the veil in the temple is supernaturally ripped in two. It's because God doesn't reside there anymore. He's come to reside in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. And and then Jesus said, there's no more sacred texts. In fact, everything that the law ever said, all 613 laws, everything the prophets ever said, I'm going to simplify with two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then, just before he's arrested... He says, a new command I give you, love others 
as I have loved you. So he made it really simple. There's no more sacred texts that that we have to worry about, and and there's no more sacred men because we because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We don't need anyone to tell us if something is true or not. Part of the the job of the Holy Spirit is to confirm, bear witness in our hearts whether what we hear is true or not. It doesn't mean we don't need teachers, but we don't need someone to teach us what is true. Because we have the Holy Spirit for that. So, so no more sacred men being the final authority. The Holy Spirit is, right? So this is the Jesus model. This is what Jesus came to. He, he completely destroyed the temple model. And he initiated the new covenant, which is the Jesus model. That for us to get to God, we just go through Jesus, right? He did it all. He did it all for us. He paid the price. He paved the way. He, he made a way for us to, to get to God. Now, what ha- started to happen early on, and it continued to happen over the centuries, is that people took the new thing that Jesus started in the church, and they started adding old things from the temple model back into it. And that's why, even today, there are elements of the temple model found pretty much in every single church, just due to thousands of years of, of traditions, right? And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not, I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think with God's help, we can continue to just chip away at these elements of the temple model so that we can make sure here at Life Journey, we're following the Jesus model. Amen. Okay, so I want to just review a couple of scriptures that we've looked at that really kind of sum up the Jesus model. The first one is this, First uh, John, I'm not, for, or John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one one another. Jesus is like, okay, church, the only thing that I want you to be known for is how you love other people, that you love other people the same way I loved you. Don't be known for your church attendance. Don't be known by how much you read your Bible. Don't be known by how much you pray. Those things are all well and good and are helpful for you to become a more loving person. But don't be known by those things. And especially don't be known for cultural issues that you support or you're against. The only thing you should be known for is loving people the way I loved you. But only a few years after Jesus started the church, people started to get off track. Right? And we looked at a historical example with the church in Galatia and how they started to add the old things of the temple model back into the new covenant. And what had happened was Paul had planted this church in Galatia. There were these people that were coming in behind Paul called Judaizers. And they were coming along saying, yeah, you know what? Paul wasn't quite right. If you really want to follow Jesus, you got to... Because you got to follow all the rules and regulations of Judaism, right? Which means all you guys need to get circumcised. Um, and among other things. 
Um, and that, but that's the thing that Paul addresses. And, and um, in Galatians 5, Paul addresses this, and he has some very harsh words for them. Um, but he had even harsher words for those who were leading them astray, that they would just go ahead and emasculate themselves. I know, right? I mean, who thought the, who, whoever thought the Bible was boring, right? You should read your Bible. Um, but then he says this in verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. Wait, wait, not my church attendance? Not how much I read my Bible? Not how much I give? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And in that statement, he echoes exactly what Jesus said in the verse we just looked at. Because in, in, who do we place our faith in? Right, Jesus is the one we place. All of our faith is placed in him. He paid the price. He went to the cross for his. He, he's paid the price for our sins. It's only through him that we get to God. So we place all of our faith in Jesus. The only thing that counts is faith, meaning faith in Jesus, that is expressed through Love, which is the same command that Jesus gave us. Love one another as I have loved you. And that verse right there is the perfect description of the Jesus model. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what I want to do today is just sort of walk through... Three different areas, three different things that really impact us as a church and, and as individuals if we're going to be really serious about living the Jesus model. And the first topic is spirituality, okay? And I want you to think back for a minute. Um, when think, think back for a minute about all the ways you've defined spirituality in the past, Right? And I guarantee you, when you do that, most of them are not going to line up with the biblical definition of spirituality. Um, like when you looked at someone and you thought, wow, they're really spiritual. What was it that made you think that? Right? Was it because they prayed a lot? Was it because they read their Bible a lot? Was it because they put on this air of spirituality, you know, and they just had this walk and they were like, bless you, my son. You know, was it that? Um, was it because they operated in a gift that you didn't have and didn't really understand, like maybe uh, the gift of prophecy or speaking in tongues or, or, or even they were a gifted teacher? Or was it because they were really, really good at operating in the temple model, right? They were like always focused on their relationship with God, never deviating. You know, what was it? All of those things are not what the Bible defines as spirituality. True spirituality is determined by how well you love, not how much you know, and not even how much you do. 
true spirituality is determined by how well you love, not how much you know. Like we said last week, the Jesus model is far less complicated, right? But it is far more demanding, right? Because in the Jesus model of relating to God, you have to constantly ask yourself this question if we're going to be serious about what, you know, following the Jesus model and following him, we have to constantly ask ourselves this question, what does unconditional, sacrificial love require of me? Right? If we're going to, if we're going to, do what Jesus asked us to do to love others the way he loved us. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did he love us? He loved us sacrificially. He gave himself for us. And he loved us unconditionally. No strings attached. We don't have to do a thing to earn his love. He loves us sacrificially and he loves us unconditionally. So every interaction that we have with another human being, you have to know what sacrificial, unconditional love looks like in that relationship with that person. And it's easy, right, to love people who love you back that way. It's easy for you to sacrificially love your kids. Right, moms? Yeah. It's easy to unconditionally um, love your spouse sometimes. Right? <laughs> But what about with the most difficult people? What about with, with people who treat you with contempt? What about with people who, who mistreat you and take advantage of you? Can you honestly look at them and say, yeah, I can love them sacrificially by giving up my rights and what I think I'm entitled to with them? And can you unconditionally Love them without any strings attached. That's a lot harder to do. It is far more demanding. What does unconditional love require of you? It's incredibly demanding, and it will be the deepest teaching you ever live out. Like I've had people, like, I mean, this is, this is the bottom line for our faith, right? And I've had people get frustrated because I teach on love so much. And like, come on, man, I want the deep stuff. But seriously, this is the deepest stuff you're ever going to live out, right? To love people the way Jesus loves you means loving people sacrificially and unconditionally. And it doesn't get any deeper than that. You're going to be totally relying on God to be able to do that every second of the day. So this idea that, that true spirituality isn't determined by how much you know, it's really get, it really gets fleshed out. By how well you love one another. Look at this next verse. Galatians 5. Verse 22 and 23. Um, it's a very uh, common verse. Most of you have seen it. Can you bring it up the next slide? Reichen? But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what's really interesting about that? Is that every one of them deals with our horizontal relationships with each other. I mean, there are, there are, these are the things that you apply to the relationships around you. And remember what we said last week. The temple model is all about our vertical relationship with God, right? Like, like you're always like, God, how, how am I doing? Are we okay, God? 
Am, am I praying enough to, to, to make you happy? Am I going to church enough? Are we okay? Do you still love me? Right? That's the temple model. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. It was constantly about their vertical relationship with God. That's the way it is in every world religion. But if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus' sacrifice, that it was enough to pay for your sin, and you're now in right standing with God, then then why would you ever question if you and God are okay? Why would you ever worry about this? If you really trusted in Jesus, that his sacrifice was enough. Again, the Old Testament, and, and, and not only that, but why would you ever go back to the temple model, right? And if you accepted Jesus, why would you ever try to earn what he's already given you far more than you could ever earn, right? And again, the Old Testament was based on the temple model. It was based on your vertical relationship with God. But Jesus came along and he fulfilled the law. He credited all of his righteousness to you if you believe in him. And then he paid the price for your sin. Right? So every command of the Old Testament, every demand of the Old Testament was met and settled by Jesus for you. You have all of the love and all of the acceptance and all of the right standing with God you will ever have right now. If you trust in Jesus, you can't get any more than that. And the only thing that Jesus asks is that we love other people the same way he loved us. See, the reason I think Jesus gave us this relationship that we don't have to focus on our vertical relationship with God anymore. We don't have to work at it. We don't have to earn it. The reason I think Jesus gave us this relationship through grace by faith is so that we can start focusing our attention on the people around us and stop worrying about this because it's all settled you can't make it any better than what it already is and to help us with that he gave us the holy spirit to live inside of us to lead us to guide us and to help us love others better So that's why the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of true spirituality, the fruit of what should come out of you if you are a follower of Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are there so you can love more effectively the people God has placed in your life. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in you so you can love people better. That's what true spirituality is. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in you so you can love people better. And we live in this culture where people tend to think spirituality equates to how much you know about God. But Scripture could not be more clear that the opposite is true. Right? Jesus said, by this one thing, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Then when we get to 1 Corinthians, we see 
that we can have all this spiritual looking stuff, right? Like we can have faith that moves mountains. We can speak in the tongues of men and angels. We can have the gift of prophecy and know all of God's secrets. We can even be a martyr for Jesus. We can have all this spiritual looking stuff, but if we don't have love, we're nothing. And then when you get to 1 John, almost the, the, the majority of 1 John deals with the fact that love is the only fruit that really proves that someone's a follower of Jesus. So true spirituality is determined by how well you love, not how much you know. The second thing is this, that the church is a body, not a kingdom. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. The idea here is that in the Jesus model, when we come together as a church, we are to be an example of what Jesus should look like if Jesus were still living on earth today. Right? So we as Jesus followers are to be an example of Jesus. We are to be the closest thing to Jesus that anyone on the earth will ever see um, this side of eternity. The problem with that is over the last several decades, and this is another reason why the legacy is in question, we have made church all about consuming. But it was meant to be about engaging. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us this. It says, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love see if if you as a jesus follower aren't engaged with the body of christ then then you're missing something right and and if you're not engaged in the body of christ then we're missing something each part of the body is meant to be connected to another part of the body doing its own special work so that by its engagement It's helping other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. But when parts of the body just kind of drift in occasionally to, to just consume what it needs, right? Not doing its own special work so that the other parts of the body can benefit, then the whole body suffers, because we, and because we live in a society you know, that's based on consumerism, that mindset has sort of bled over into the church. Um, and there are even churches that, that really push that, right? That their whole culture is about consuming something. Um, and this is something I struggled with ever since we started the church. I, just, I mean, I've fought this and I've fought this. I don't even like the idea of advertising. For the church, because I don't want to perpetuate this consumerism mindset, right? Um, but that's a talk for another time. 
Um, <laughs> um, but there are many people in the church who have bought the lie that church is just another product to consume. When it was meant, it wasn't meant to be that way. It was meant to be something you connect to and engage in and contribute to. Um, and there are even some of you who who may have bought into that lie. You, you know, you just sort of come occasionally to be encouraged when you need it, and 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 maybe you take away some nuggets of truth that you can apply to your life sometimes. But uh, you never really get involved and, and serve. You don't really um, contribute with your giving. You never really connect with other people and pour the gifts that God's given you into their lives. Um, and, and you just, you're, you're missing something, and we're missing something when that happens. See, the church is not a collection of lone rangers, the church is the body of Christ. We are the extension of Jesus in the earth. And there are contributions you can make, but there are some contributions that can't be made without you. Without the whole body engaging. And so if you're consuming and not engaging, you're missing something. And the rest of us are missing something too. And I didn't really plan it this way, but if... if if that kind of speaks to you and you say, yeah, you're right, I need to get engaged. You want to get engaged and you want to get connected somehow, um, in your bulletin is a connection card. And on the back, there's several areas that you can check off where you can get connected. Just put your name on the front and check off where you want to get connected and we'll make sure that that happens, okay? Um, so, the church is a body, not a kingdom. And then number three, we have influence to help those who don't. This is one of the biggest changes that Jesus made when he dismantled the temple model. Because up until the point that Jesus showed up, anyone with any kind of power or authority used that power and authority to benefit himself. Right? Any kind of power or authority that put a person in any kind of leadership position over other people that leadership position was used to always benefit the leader, not the led. But Jesus comes along and he turns the whole thing upside down. Look at Matthew 20. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Right? He's making a statement. You know this is the fact. This is the way it is, right? But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I have a feeling that when Jesus spoke those words... Um, he knew that not everyone grasped what he was saying because it was so radical and so unheard of um, when he taught it. Um, much less experienced, right? They, none of them had ever heard this, much less experienced it. Um, but he wanted to make sure his disciples got this, right? And so a little bit later, you know what he does? He gathers his 12 disciples in a room 
And it's just before he shares his last meal with him before he gets arrested. And he goes around to each and every one of them doing the most humbling tasks that existed in their culture, which was always reserved for the servant of the house. And that was washing their feet. And it was so uncomfortable for them. They couldn't believe that their leader, the one that they had been following, is humbling himself to this position of a servant and washing their feet, that he would do this to them. But he wanted them to understand that they were to never use their authority to benefit themselves. And then after he gets done washing their feet, he says this to them. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. But since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Have you ever read that before? That Jesus told us to do exactly what he did to them? So I thought it would be a good idea for us to maybe practice this. And since it's Mother's Day, maybe the men can wash the ladies' feet, right? So ladies, you can go ahead and start taking your shoes off. Men, there's basins right behind the curtain. You can help yourself. <laughs> some of you knew I was joking. But some of your some of your faces were like, oh, no. <laughs> no, that's not what he's talking about, is it? In their culture, yeah, right? Feet washing was a necessary thing, right? They all had sandals. They all had dirt streets. Foot washing was very common. It was always done by the servant. The point is, you know, it's, it's not about the feet washing. And I've been to churches, you know, that think that's literal, right? And they did that pretty commonly. And it was really weird and uncomfortable. Um, I really don't need my feet to be washed, right? I just took a shower. Um, but he doesn't mean... That in our culture, we should be washing each other's feet. You have to remember, that's what servants did in their culture. It's not about the feet. <laughs> it's about the serving. Right? In other words, the point he's trying to make is that whenever you hold any kind of power or authority over someone else, you are to use that power and authority to serve those under you. Not make them serve you. So if you're a Christian and you have some kind of authority, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're a leader on any level, uh, whether it's in your home or your office or in the community, if, if you're a Christian and you have any kind of wealth, fame, or extra resources, what this means, basically for every single one of us, is that we are responsible for serving those who don't have what we have. Whether it be authority or influence or, or um, resources, right? You are to leverage what you have for the benefit of others. 
and, and I know all the arguments that go on in your head and, and how you can find ways to exclude yourself. But no, I'm talking to all of us, right? Um, if, if most of you I know hold some kind of leadership role or you have some influence over other people. But, and this includes probably most all of us, if you make more than 32000 a year, do you realize that you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth? And that's amazing when you think about it. You're, one of the one, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And if you've never checked out where you stand, it's, it's pretty interesting. You should check it out. It's globalrichlist.com. Um, it's, it'll open your eyes to see where we are with, compared to the rest of the world. And, and the temptation is when you've been blessed, right? When, when, whether it's you know, power or authority or, or money. When you've been blessed, it's really tempting to think... The reason I have those things is I'm pretty clever, right? I'm pretty smart, right? I got a lot of drive. I took advantage of things that other people didn't. I got a good education. I deserve all this. See, part of the seductiveness of having money, power, authority is if you have it, you think you must have done something to deserve it. And when you start thinking that way, it heads you down a really really dark path. That's why one of the most prominent markers of a follower of Jesus is and someone who really gets the Jesus model is a person who has moved from being an owner to a steward. I mean, Scripture is very clear that everything that we have belongs to God. We're simply stewards of everything we have. And most of us get that, right? But most of us, I think, apply it to our stuff and our financial resources. But Scripture is also very clear that all authority comes from God. So if you have any kind of authority, that's been given to you by God as well to be a steward of. If you're a husband, if you're a parent, that authority you hold in your household came from God. If you have authority in your job or in your community, in your HOA or your sports league, it all came from God. And then there's this really unusual parable that Jesus told that tells us what we're supposed to do with those things God has given us. Whether it be money, power, authority, you know, that we find ourselves with. Um, Luke chapter 16 Beginning with verse 1. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, Now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, 
How much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. How's that for a biblical word? The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with the world around them than the children of the light. Isn't that an interesting statement? Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. Notice he didn't say, use your boss's resources to, to you know, benefit others, right? He's not, he's not um, praising the manager in the story. He was a dishonest guy. He simply used that part of the story to make the point that the people of this world are more shrewd than Christians. The real point of the story that he spells out for us is use your worldly resources for the benefit of others. That's what they're there for. You haven't been given those things just to serve yourself and your family. You haven't been given those things so you can acquire more of the same. Those things were never ever meant to just terminate on you either. These were meant to be a tool to benefit others. Whether it's resources, whether it's influence, whether it's authority. It's all used to benefit other people. And it's so easy to lose sight of that, isn't it? I mean, we get so caught up in just the day-to-day and busyness. It's so easy to lose sight of that. I think that's why Jesus' story in Matthew 4 about the parable of the different soils, right, is so applicable to us, especially the parable of the part where the seed that is sown among the thorns, right? Because it didn't produce fruit. Why? Because it got choked out by the cares of the world. And we have so many cares of the world, don't we? We are constantly struggling to just kind of tread water sometimes because we're so busy. we got so much to handle. We have so much on our plate. Our schedule's overbooked. we got too much to do. And we can hardly keep up, and we lose sight of these simple truths. And I don't want us as a church to, to lose sight of those either. It's easy as a church to do that as well, not just individuals, but as a church. We can get so busy just maintaining that we forget that there are people outside of these walls who need us to show love to them and use our authority and resources and influence to benefit them. And we've done lots of different um, outreaches in the past. Um, we we. At one point, we did a thing called um, Heart for the Community, where I was try- where I gave all of you money and gave you 
you know, free license to go figure out something to do with it outside of these walls, and that was pretty awesome. Um, but I want us to, to, I want us to really, as a church, move way beyond that, to where on a continual, recurring basis, we as a body go out of this place and bless our community. And that's why we're launching this, this a new initiative called Serving Saturday. And on Serving Saturday, I want to encourage everyone to get involved. Our first outreach for Serving Saturday is going to be the same uh, neighborhood that, that I think your life group went to, right? It's a um, trailer park court that is just falling apart. I mean, these people live in these homes that are literally falling apart. And, and they're, I mean, they're, they're like steps that are broken and rails that are broken. Their roofs leak. And we're just going to go and be a blessing to them. We have resources. We have influence in this community. And we need to use it. So our first serving Saturday will be June 11th. And we're going to do this on a consistently regular basis. Whether it's every quarter or every couple months. I, I want you to, un- to just understand that we as a church are going to have Serving Saturday on a regular basis, okay? And it'll probably be more frequent as the weather's nicer. But mark your calendars. June 11th is our first Serving Saturday, and we'll get all the details as we get closer to that. Um, But the whole point to all of this is that the Jesus model is all about loving people and serving people. I think Paul summed it up really well when he was addressing this issue with the Galatians. He says, for you have been called to live in freedom. What freedom is he talking about? He's talking about freedom from the temple model, right? That's what he was dealing with in in Galatians 5. You've been called to live in freedom from the temple model. And now you live in freedom in the Jesus model. You've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom... To satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Think we can do that? I do. With God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. I thank you, God, that we have been set free by Jesus. We, don't, we do not, we, we are free from the bondage of sin and death. We are free from the temple model. We don't have to earn anything from you. We have it all. Help us, God, to stop focusing on our vertical relationship with you and, and use all of our energy and attention to focus on our horizontal relationships. That's what it's all about. That's how we demonstrate our love for you, God. I pray that you would help us in this, not only as individuals, but as a church body.